Thanks, Andrew. I, um, I had the thunder, but I took some Pepto-Bismol between meetings. <laughs> so don't worry. That was so nice, all the things that Andrew said about me. The, the only thing I wish is that my wife could be here to hear all of them. But we'll get her to listen to the archive. How are you all doing? It's good to see you. Um, hey, I want to... Um, uh, I, I, such a great time of the year. Holiday season, right? It's wonderful. Now, I need, need a truth check, though, right away. I need to know how many of you have gone straight to listening to Christmas music, even though it's November. Show of hands. You couldn't help it. <laughs> he was in Walmart. They went at the stroke of midnight on Halloween. They switched over to Christmas music, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, cold weather, although today's going to be warm, but are we enjoying the cold? I'm from Chicago. I like the cold weather. You guys like the cold weather? Who's mixed reaction from Southerners? Who has who's made their first pot of chili so far? Chili? Oh my word! I heard. Okay. So what's the deal? I'm in Walmart and I, and I see the can of chili and it says chili con carne. What's what's that mean? Con carne with meat. Ah. Okay. So that's like maybe carnivorous. What's that mean? Meat eating, right? And so I'm not actually talking about chili or dinosaurs. I want to talk about the incarnation. What's that mean? The inmeatment. It's this great theological term where Jesus becomes meat, right? That's, that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about we're moving in toward Christmas, although Thanksgiving is next week or this week. Um, uh, but I want to talk about uh, the incarnation and... Um, Mrs. Snyder is going to be running the um, uh, uh, PowerPoint for me. You can go ahead and put the first slide up. I, I called her Mrs. S earlier, and she said she had just seen Skyfall, and she just preferred S. <laughs> so that's S back there. This is what I want to talk about today. I want to ask you the question, and I want to suggest the answer as well, because, you know, I've got like two hours. Uh, I, I, I want to ask the question, how did he become the man that he was? Talking about Jesus, right, because it's church. Um, I, want to ask, I want to ask the question, how did he become the man that he was? And I, where I really want to go is I want to address just the realistic, everyday, real-life possibility. Is Jesus an example for us? And, uh, you know, I, okay, Sunday school, church, and we all know that the answer is supposed to be yes, but it's a little more complicated than that when we get through living everyday life, you know, um, because, you know, Jesus was different from us. So, um, so that's what I want to talk about. Um, uh, I, this two-meeting thing is new to me. So, you know, apparently I don't have as much time as, as we would have, you know, back in the day. And uh, so I've had to cut the message way, way down. And so I don't want to overreach. We're just going to cover the entire life of Jesus from birth until death and resurrection in the Gospel of Luke. And we, can, we should be able to do that today. Is that all right? Because I cut that down because Luke also wrote the book of Acts. I was going to do Luke and Acts together, but out of respect for the fact that we now have two meetings. And about this time in the 830 service, people went like screaming from the room. Uh, so uh, so let's, uh, let's look at some of the events in the life of Jesus as, uh, as Luke tells it. And we are coming up on the holiday season. S, go ahead and flip it. Um, you guys know this story, right? Uh, shepherds, this is the, I still go on YouTube still. And I click on peanuts and Linus 
And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Just so I can see it. And Linus goes like pulling his blanket behind him and he walks out and he goes, lights, please. And then, you know, and he goes, and then he, and then he shares these verses out of Luke, right? And um, so I'll read them to you. And um, I'm going to ask you a question after I read the passage. Do you know what that question is going to be? How did you guys know that? That's amazing. Oh, it's on, the, it's on the slide, right? I'm going to ask you the question. What was the sign? All right, here we go. This is from Luke chapter 2. And Luke and Linus both say, There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior is born for you. He is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds looked at one another and said, whoa. And then it goes on. Okay? So here's my question. What was the sign? Baby in a manger, right? Whoever that was, thank you for speaking up. You got it right. Open book test. Good. Now... Here's, here's the, the first conundrum that I encounter as I look at the life of Jesus. Uh, shepherds, hillside, outside of this, the city of David, the little village of David. And here's what happened that night. The fabric of the sky was like ripped open, almost like a movie screen, you know, had been like totally ripped open. You see beyond the veil into the reality of heaven, there's an angelic appearance. The glory of God, whatever that is, begins to shine through. He delivers, and they're scared, like, a lot. And, um, and, then, and then there's this heavenly host, and they begin to worship glory to God in the highest in a way that kind of gives you a peek straight through to Revelation of what it's like around the throne all of the time. I mean, reality is like melting away. It's a Salvador Dali picture, and it's, whoa. And then just as quickly, shunk, it all closes up. But the angel said, what was the sign? Work with me. You've had coffee, right? It doesn't have to be one way. We can talk. The sign was a baby lying in a feeding trough wrapped up in cloth. Now, the feeding trough thing, you know, we think that's kind of, you know, like... um, quaint or, you know, it's very countrified, but, you know, people were born back in the day in all kinds of circumstances. And uh, so that, you know, it was probably a little bit out of the ordinary, but he probably wasn't the first baby born where they just needed to throw some hay around and uh, deliver the child. Wouldn't you think that if God chose to come to earth, that the sign would be the angelic visitation, the incredible display in the night sky, wouldn't you think that the sign that God had for all of humanity, would have been something super freaking natural. And instead, the sign as described in the text from the angel is, it's a baby. I think one or two babies had been born by then in the history of the human race. All right? So 
we're going to hold on to that thought because God's sign to us is that woman had a baby, right? Natty, is your wife going to have a baby? Yeah, Tosh, right? First baby. It's great. I want to speak blessings over that. It's an entirely new experience for the woman, especially the first child. And, of course, the husband is like, honk, he's already passed out somewhere in the delivery room. And, you know, and this young couple, they don't even have a delivery room. You know, they're, like, scared completely to death about this. There's no family structure or support because they're on the road. And the sign that God has is that a child is born, which has happened, like, a gazillion times, even in the time of Jesus. So I want to hold on to that. It, it is Christmas, so there's a lot of baby songs. Isn't that right? We sing about baby Jesus a bunch. All right? And uh, as anybody, you've already admitted at least one-third of the room that you've got Christmas music either at Walmart or in your house. Has anybody begun to sing Christmas carols? couple. All right? We're going to sing today. Okay? We're going to sing right now. Go ahead, S. Put up the next slide. Let's sing Away in a Manger. Okay? You, um, I'm serious now. This is the this is the audience participation part of what's going on. We're going to sing away in a manger. <laughs> Lyrics are up there just for you, okay? My wife always tells me I start too low or too high, and so I might do that too. But if I sing, you're not going to leave me up here alone, are you? <laughs> okay. All right. So here we go. Okay, ready? <clears throat> away in a manger, no crib for us. The little Lord Jesus down his sweet bed, the stars in the sky down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus sleep on the Y'all did real well. That was kind of nice. Isn't it nice, by the way, to hear our own voices, one another? together singing. I mean, that's a dynamic of worship. I love when sometimes the band takes their foot off the pedal and we hear one another sing. And and Christmas carols are great worship, right? Okay? So we got little Lord Jesus. In fact, I, I think that's probably what they called him was little Lord Jesus, right? Around the house. Say, little Lord Jesus, wash up. It's time for dinner. Little Lord Jesus, brush your teeth before you go to bed. I think that's probably what they called him, right? You know, there's there's other verses to this. Should we sing all of them? No, no, we shouldn't. But uh, do, you, do you know one of the other verses is, the cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, the little Lord Jesus. Okay, now number one, I'm a city guy. I'm from Chicago. I was surprised the first time I actually heard a cow low. Have you ever heard a cow low? Anybody want to do an impersonation? Right here. Come on. It's, that's not it. That's not it. Listen, when a cow lets loose with the mm thing, you can hear it across the valley. Isn't that right? Okay. Now, those of you ladies who have given birth to children, if your child was startled awake in the night by the lowing of a very large domesticated animal, (laughs) would your child cry? Okay. Moms, would you be worried if your baby never cried? Would that, would that actually be a warning sign about the health of your child? All right, so here's where I'm going with this. We have this image. We're talking about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, 
uncreated, forever existent. It says in Colossians, in him all things hold together. He's before all things. He has the preeminence in all things. And he, uh, he becomes uh, enmeted, he becomes enfleshed into this human body, right? And yet somehow we have these kind of idealized pictures of Jesus like little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And doesn't that strike you as a little weird? I mean, it's pretty and it's nice. And, you know, you kind of see, you know, the, you know, the little halo thing around Jesus as he's there. But that's probably not what happened. When the cow lowed, poor baby wakes. What does poor baby do? Poor baby screams. Poor baby cries. Right? I had somebody in the 8 o'clock service, a woman who sat right about that empty seat there. And she said the only time that her kids didn't cry is when they were asleep. So if they were awake, they were crying. Right? Anybody ever had those experiences? And here we've got in our popular kind of Christmassy sort of thing, little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I just don't think that it was like that. All right, theological question, deep. You're going to have to dig deep here. How many of you think he was a real baby? Oh, yeah. Okay, does that mean that uh, he could uh, speak whatever his native language was, like, boom, right out of the birth canal? Boom, Jesus, hey, mom, hey, dad. Right? Okay. How many of you know that he had to learn how to crawl? He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to be potty trained. He had to learn how to say please and thank you or whatever the Hebrew equivalent of that is. Right? Okay. Now, here's the next question I have that's deeply, deeply theological. S, go ahead. I want to know, was the baby Jesus a good host? Because the shepherds run off to go look at the baby Jesus. Right? And they find him. And what do they do when they find him? They worship him. Isn't that right? And so little baby Jesus probably says, you guys must be exhausted. Mother, could you get them some tea, please? Now, I want you to answer this question as honestly as you know how. There's magi that show up either that night or, you know, sometime later. There's the shepherds that certainly show up that night. I want to know, was the baby Jesus a good host that night? Do you think he remembered that they visited him? Younger people, does it drive you crazy when your parents tell you about all the things that happened when you were one, two, three, and four, and you go, no way. Right? Okay. Okay. Now, by the way, is that not the creepiest picture of a baby Jesus <laughs> you have ever seen? See, because when I was putting the PowerPoint together, of course, what I did was I went to Google, I went to uh, images, I went to moderate safe search, and then I typed in <laughs> little Lord Jesus. What? You're laughing. Moderate safe search? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm old, you know. Okay. So, because, never mind. All right. So, I, I typed in little Lord Jesus. Okay? And by the way, that is not the creepiest picture that I found. So, let's look at a couple here. We've got pastel Jesus. <laughs> With the, uh, with the adoring lamb sold separately, okay? Okay, then we also have the uh, waving baby Jesus with a movable action figure arm that waves. There's baby Jesus. He's waving at people. And then the next one we have is radioactive glow-in-the-dark Jesus. <laughs> this is really helpful back in a time when there are no electric lights at all. If you're missing your baby, you just look for the one that glows in the dark. That's my kid. And then finally, my favorite was the Lord of the Rings baby Jesus, who's available in Dwarf, Elven, and Hobbit, so that Middle-earth also can be saved. So, by the, you know, so there's, there's all of these representations 
of little Lord Jesus and not one of them. I mean, and, and I get it. They're trying to be reverent, right? You know, the, 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 the glowing thing was supposed to show like this aura of glory of God because he is God come to earth, the savior of the human race and all of that, right? Now, I want to I go ahead and just flash my credentials um, um, as good as they are. Um, Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus is God come to earth. When he suffered and he died, when he was up on the cross on Calvary, his blood paid the price for my sin and for yours. And it's the only blood in all of human history that can pay the price for somebody else's sin. The the deity of Jesus and the preciousness of the blood of Jesus is what pays the price for the fact that we are sinful and separated from God. Okay, you with me? That's the Lord Jesus, King of the universe, also in human form. But at the same time, now we've, we've joked around. Was Jesus, baby Jesus a good host? Did he have to learn what it meant to uh, speak, to crawl, to walk, um, to, to be potty trained, to do all of those things? Did Jesus have to learn all of those things? Is that right? Okay. Because when my kids, I've got three kids, when they learned to talk, they would say stuff like, is us going to Walmart? Right? And especially because it's Kentucky. Uh, I'm from Chicago, I told you. Okay, so so now if, if little Lord Jesus said, is us going to Walmart, did he make a mistake? Did his mom or dad probably correct his grammar? Hopefully. Yeah, good. All right. He made a mistake. His parents corrected his grammar. Was that a sin? Because Jesus is perfect, remember? So... The real baby Jesus probably had a little trouble with grammar. Subject-verb-agreement, right? You think? All right, let's go to the next slide, S, if that's all right. So I told you we're going to go through Luke. I meant it, okay? So here we go, from the shepherds in the field and Jesus, the really poor host, to the end of chapter 2, which is this story. And you guys know this story too, right? Jesus, 12-year-old boy, the family, like good Jewish families, would make regular trips up the hill to Jerusalem uh, at least once a year and sometimes for some families as many as three times a year to celebrate the great feasts in the uh, Jewish faith, right? And we know this, that uh, they traveled together, extended family. Anybody ever traveled with your cousins to the beach or the mountains or something like that? And so what happens is, is that they head back home. You know this. They head back home. They take some two or three days to figure out that Jesus isn't five camels back. Uh, he's missing. And so what do dad and mom do? Panic. Good. Panic goes here. Okay, go all the way back uphill to Jerusalem. It's a pretty good-sized city, and so they look around the city. It takes them a little while to be able to find Jesus, and where is he? I'm sorry? Good. All right. Told you. We can talk, right? Now, 12-year-old kid. 12-year-old kid, at 12, if you decide to ditch mom and dad and stay behind in the capital city of your nation alone, at 12, do you realize that dad and mom are going to freak? He chose to do it anyway. Little Lord Jesus, now little 12-year-old Jesus, Lord, little 12-year-old Lord Jesus, He decided to do it anyway. 
And uh, now I'm going to move away from the text and I'm going to tell you what I think. So this is, this is my opinion. And then we're going to try to build a little bit on the text and on my opinion, okay? I think Jesus was fully aware of what he was doing, all right? But I do think that somewhere between birth and 12 years old, that Jesus was becoming aware of his calling, his destiny, and his mission. That's what I think. I think that there was a growing awareness. You guys have already bought in that he didn't speak straight out of the birth canal, that he had to learn everything else the way that normal people learn it. He had to learn how to walk one step at a time. When do you think that Jesus began to become self-aware as to his calling, his destiny, and his mission in life? And I'd like to suggest that here he is at age 12. He's right on the edge of becoming a son of the covenant. He's right on the edge of moving into real responsibilities within his faith community there in Nazareth and, and within his family setting. And I think that what had been going on between age 1 and 12 is that he was beginning to develop deep-seated questions. Who am I? What's my calling? What's my destiny? Why was I born? Have you guys ever asked any questions like that of yourself? I, I really think you can, you can tap into your own experience, whether you ask those questions early or late in life. I think Jesus asked those same questions. And parents of children, and this could be like as young as three-year-olds or six-year-olds or nine-year-olds or 12-year-olds. Parents, have your children ever asked you a question that revealed how much was going on inside their little noggin? And as a parent, you go, whoa. It's like, I had no idea she or he was thinking along those lines. In other words, the question actually becomes a revelation of how deep the waters are in your child. Parents, have you ever had that experience? Okay, apparently only my children are deep waters. That's okay. Okay, I think that's a universal experience is that we're surprised at how much our children are processing. I think Jesus was processing. And I think that by age 12, he was conversant with the Hebrew scriptures. He was reading things in the history of Israel. That's Genesis through Esther. He's reading things in the poetry of, uh, you know, of Psalms and Proverbs and of Song of Songs. He's reading things in the prophets. And I believe that questions were beginning to burn in his heart about who he was. In fact, we actually have a record from later on when Jesus was older of one question that he asked the Pharisees. He, asked, he said, I got a question for you guys because the greatest king in the history of Israel had been King David. David was archetypal of the Messiah King. And David wrote this psalm that says, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord says to my Lord, David is referring to the Messiah as his Lord. So you got this? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my feet while I make your enemies a footstool. And Jesus actually asks the Pharisees, wait a minute, why would David call one of his descendants my Lord? Because in that culture, the older was always the greater. And the Pharisees go, um, now I don't know when he came up with that question, but it wouldn't surprise me if at age 12, he had that question. Now, what was Jesus doing in the temple? Yeah, and, and, and I've kind of tipped it, so good for you that say he's asking questions. But the popular view of what Jesus was doing in the temple is that he was teaching. And I'm here to tell you that the popular view of the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple teaching is counter to the text, but runs right along with our view of little Lord baby Jesus. That he is somehow special. Because what the text says is that he was in the temple 
asking questions, and that the chief priests and scribes were surprised at his answers. And the sense of that passage is the dialogue that Jesus initiates with the questions. It's not 12-year-old Jesus going, riddle me this, and then he's laying it on him. Here's what I think happened. I think the 12-year-old Jesus is beginning to come awake to his calling, to his destiny, and to his life. And he goes to the one place. It's the center of of their culture. It's the center of their faith. It's where the presence of Yahweh God is said, this is my place, my throne. I will dwell here forever. And he goes to the religious experts of his day because he's burning with questions. That's what I think happened. And so I think his questions were real. I don't think he was trying to play gotcha. I think that Jesus was growing up the way that you grew up, the way that I grew up. I think Jesus was growing up. I want you to think back to your own experiences as a young person, as a teenager, on into your 20s or even your 30s, when you had to wrestle with questions like this. That's what I think was going on, what was going on with Jesus. So let me turn my pages from my notes here. That's all that Luke gives us about the birth and the growing up period of Jesus. We get the birth narrative, we get a little peek at 12, and then it says right at the end that Jesus grew in knowledge and favor with both God and man. Okay? Does your view of Jesus, the baby, the teenager, or the man, does your view of Jesus allow for Jesus to grow in knowledge? Or does he just know everything? because he's the boss's son. Does your view of Jesus allow for him to grow in knowledge? Okay, yes, go ahead. The next picture that we get is in Luke chapter four. And I told you we're gonna go all the way through the gospel of Luke. We're at chapter four now. So you're gonna be here a while, right? Okay, the next picture that we get of Jesus is, this is the sermon, the first sermon that Luke chooses to record. He probably had been preaching some sort of message just a little bit, Uh, before we get this in Luke chapter 4. But this is the first picture that we get of of Luke's sermon, or of Jesus' sermon that Luke records. And before he preaches this, let's check out who are the Bible scholars. This is the first recorded sermon that uh, Jesus has. What did Jesus do right before he preached this sermon? What were the events? And, And if you have your Bible open, you can just look at the headings, look backwards a few headings. What's happened to Jesus right before he preaches this sermon? Tempted in the wilderness, good. And right before being tempted in the wilderness, the baptism. So let's start with the baptism, then we'll go to the temptation. Just popcorn, what happens during the baptism of Jesus? Holy Spirit, dove comes down. Okay, now Luke clearly made all that up because it's poetic, right? Actually, the the four Gospels all struggle to describe precisely what happened. Some people are thinking maybe it's thunder. Some people are saying, well, it's a light that kind of looks like a dove. Some people say, no, no, like this this bird comes down and lands on his shoulder. Anything else happens? Water baptized? A voice. What's the voice say? Get out of the pool? It's time for adult swim? What's the voice say? It's my son. I love him so much. You see, Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years old. So something was going on between birth and age 12. I think something else was going on between age 12 and age 30. And then at the baptism is when this voice gives this 
fatherly approval. And there's this, this event that involves the Holy Spirit coming down on him. In fact, John, uh, John's gospel records John the Baptist as saying, the one whom you see the Spirit come on and remain, this is the one that I've called, right? So let's just take a minute real quick and unpack age 12 to age 30. What was Jesus doing between age 12 and age 30? Working, learning. What was he doing for work? Whoever spoke up? Carpenter. Why was he a carpenter? Because back in the day, whatever the family business was, that's what you did, okay? Uh, I've asked moms about babies and their experience there. Dads, have you ever tried to teach your kid how to hammer a nail? Okay, this is kind of what it looks like. You get an old two-by-four that's just about this long. The dad starts the nail. And then you say, all right, you know, here you go, little boy, little girl, drive the nail. What does the kid do? Both hands on the hammer, tink, 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 tink. Usually they're like biting their tongue. Tink, 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 tink. Right? Okay. All right. Sorry. Okay. And what happens to the nail? Right? First time that I tried to drive a nail, my dad then said, wait a minute, give me that, give me that. And he takes the hammer and he goes, bang, bang, bang. And the nail comes back up and I go, you can do that? You get like a do-over on this? It was like amazing. All right? So the first time Jesus tried to dive in hell, the very first time, did he say, Dad, may I please have the 16-ounce framing hammer? And did he go, pow, pow, and down goes the nail. Is that what happened? No. He learned to drive a nail the way we all learned to drive a nail. Isn't that right? Okay. How about, okay, fit in your appropriate construction joke here. Do you think Jesus ever cut a board too short? You know, I cut it twice and still too short, you know, things like that, right? Okay, now if he made those kind of mistakes, here's my question. If he made those kind of mistakes, were they sin? Was Jesus sinning? Okay, so what I'm trying to give us a picture of is that Jesus experienced life the same way that you and I have experienced life. Mistakes, trial and error. In fact, the scripture actually says that Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And a lot of people read the word obedience, they read the word suffering, and they go, oh yeah, sure, Jesus suffered terribly at the cross. They miss the point that it was the fact that he had learned obedience that led him to endure the suffering on the cross. He had learned the obedience prior. Do you see that? Okay. This, this is so important to get this picture of Jesus. I, I want to share with you, and if you can ever get this out-of-print book, I highly recommend it. It's, it's such a good image. I need to be able to share it, and it's not, it's not my parable, but it's a really, really good one. It's from a book called Meeting Jesus by William Sampson, who conducts retreats in which he invites people to use their imagination to engage with the scriptural text to try to make the text come alive, okay? And so now in this book, he's trying to show how would Jesus, who is living life the same way that you and I are living life, but he's also not sinned, how does he interact with that world? So we're coming up on the holidays. We've got Thanksgiving. We've got Christmas. How many of you have ever been to a Christmas party? Okay. All right. Now, I've been in the business world in the past. I'm in the business world now. Um, have you ever been to a Christmas party where the eggnog wasn't just eggnog, that there were like other libations at the Christmas party? Okay. Now, maybe you've never been there, but I'm just going to say I've been to parties like that. And here's the, here's the example that William Sampson uses. He says, imagine that you went to a party, but you arrive an hour and a half late. 
so that everybody else has been partying for an hour and a half. Everyone else has been partying for an hour and a half. So that when you arrive there, you are pretty much the only sober person in the room. Now, just in case you've never been to parties like this, let me tell you what they're like. People talk a little bit louder than they need to, right? And I'm really sorry about this because this is going to be coffee breath. They also violate your personal space when they're talking to you. I'm sorry because I've had I'm really sorry, okay? They violate your personal space. Or have you been to a party where somebody tells a joke and everybody is cracking up and you just go, it wasn't that funny. But they've, they've had a little liquid comedy. So they think it's really funny. Now, have you ever been to parties like that? Okay, I have. William Sampson suggests this as the perfect image for Jesus who has learned to live life one step at a time. He's the only sober person at a party that is drunk on sin. Can you accept that kind of image? Jesus is the only sober person at the party that is drunk on sin. Now, let me ask you this. If you're the only sober person, do you see the party the way it is for reality or do the drunk people see the party for the reality? Who sees it more clearly? The sober guy. In other words, Jesus has a better grasp on reality than the people who are totally wasted on the intoxicant. Jesus, who lives everyday life, is the one who is actually better equipped to see life the way it is because he's not wasted. Does that make sense? All right? And so here's what happens, is that this qualifies Jesus to be our guide in how to live. Who do you want driving home from the party? Who do you want driving home from the party? The guy who's smashed or the guy who's sober? Because it really matters. Well, guess what? Life is like that too. Who do you want guiding you through life? The guy who's smashed or the guy who's sober? Who do you want guiding you through life? Now, I know you're all going to buy into that because it's church and you're supposed to do that and because I'm right. Um, But here's the deal. Here's the deal. We tend to have an unspoken assumption about Jesus, and that is he's never lived my life. He's got no clue of what it's like to be me. He doesn't understand, and then you fill in the blank with whatever it is that you have, my sorrow, my pain, whatever the deal is. The truth is, is it's the person, this is from C.S. Lewis, it's the person who has resisted temptation who understands the full impact of temptation. My dad, God rest his soul, used to say that he could resist anything except temptation. Okay? And so my resistance is a little bit better than my dad's. I can resist about 7% temptation, and then, boom, I fall off the wagon. Boom. Right? Jesus, okay, Ray, 7%. Jesus, resist temptation. Okay? Who understands what it means for the heat in life to be turned up more? The guy who gave in at 7% or the guy who ran the full race and won? Who understands the race better? Jesus. But we tend to think, in fact, we're going to get to a a slide with some statements on it. We tend to think that he doesn't really know what our life is. Now, no one actually says that out loud because Jesus is God and Jesus is, you know, like a really good guy. But when we look at our life, we just simply say, his life has nothing to do with mine. The truth is, is that he's... He sees life better than we do. 
He's actually endured more than we've endured, and he has greater sympathies for what we endure because he's run the entire race. That's why little Lord Jesus is sometimes damaging to us. Or 12-year-old Jesus, who is teaching in the temple, is damaging to us. And that's why when he opens the scripture here in Luke chapter 4, I didn't forget where I was. It says, verse, chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, hometown, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sits down and he says, you're seeing the fulfillment of the scripture right in front of you. Okay. Jesus picked this particular scripture for a reason. He picked it because it's the first of four songs in Isaiah about God's chosen servant the Messiah. There's four of them. So if you want homework, you can actually, you can go with most Bibles that have any kind of study notes and you can follow these servant songs along. And this is the first of them. Okay. And Jesus is saying that he is navigating life. How? By the spirit, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me. This takes us to the next point. Okay. Jesus understands our life. That was my first point. The next point How did Jesus navigate life so successfully? Oh, well, he was the boss's son, so he had an unfair advantage, right? No, that's not the testimony of the scripture. The testimony of the scripture is, and Jesus is telling it in his very first sermon, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me, okay? In other words, Jesus lived his life so closely in concert with the Holy Spirit that he was able to receive direction about the best way to navigate his life. Why is it that he doesn't begin his ministry until there's baptism? Right? Why isn't there ministry until there's the Holy Spirit and the approbation? Okay? Or until he... Uh, and, and we did cover, by the way, whoever said it over there, the idea of temptation in the wilderness. These are things that are preparing him to be the teacher of life, the master of life. Jesus is the master teacher of life because he has more experience than you or me. And he earned every bit of it. He didn't get it because he was the boss's son. What he did, he did through the Holy Spirit. What's exciting is, is that the same Holy Spirit who came to Jesus' aid is willing and able and does come to our aid as well. Isn't that true? Is the Holy Spirit available to any follower of Jesus? Just asking. The correct answer is yes. The Holy Spirit is available to any follower of Jesus. Jesus becomes our example for living because he lived life the way we did. And he's trying to point us in this very first sermon to the source of that life. And it is the direction and the input of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Right before he preaches this, it talks about the fact that he's healed people. Okay? Let's take it one step more. How did Jesus do the things he did, which involved healing the sick and casting devils out of people who were tortured by the evil one. How did he do that? 
Your turn. The correct answer is, he did it through the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, in living life and in doing ministry, he's our example. Did he heal the sick because he was the boss's son? I tell you, I am God come to earth. All you lepers be clean because I am special. Find that for me in the scriptures. The problem is, is that our unspoken assumptions are that the things Jesus did are beyond us because he was the boss's son. When in fact, what Jesus does say in another gospel is, the things you've seen me do, these things my followers will do, and even greater than these, because I go to the Father. After he goes to the Father, who does he send? Okay? All right. Okay. So the church wrestled with this identity of Jesus. Next slide, please. The church wrestled with this identity of Jesus for a long time. It quite literally took them a couple of centuries to be able to get together and come up with this formulation. Jesus is simultaneously 100% God and 100% man. The blood of Jesus, the cleansing agent for your sin and for mine, the one thing that we can't do for ourselves, Jesus does for us. He pays the price for our separation from God and he cleanses us of our sin. Thank you, Jesus. I can't do that. But he lives his life completely as a man. And so we get from John's prologue, the word became flesh, incarnation. Okay? Peter, in the book of Acts, I told you I wanted to preach the whole book of Acts as well. Peter, when he's called upon at a moment's notice to preach, really without any preparation, right about the middle where where the dash is, he says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. It's bookended under the power of the Holy Spirit, doing the good stuff because God was with him. What's one of the names of Jesus that we sing at Christmas time? Emmanuel, which means, is God with us? I mean, okay, you know the answer is yes. I want to ask you, is God with us? The unspoken assumption is, is God's up there, and I'm just trying to do the best I can. That's the unspoken assumption. Jesus, according to Peter, did what he did under the power of the Spirit and because of the presence of God. What's available to every student of Jesus? The power of the Spirit and the presence of God. It's available to me and to you. Okay, Philippians, I'm going to just go past that just for the sake of time. But Paul describes a stair step down that Jesus took. It's like he divested himself. It's like he took off the outer garment of privilege of being God. And, and he's a man. And then this is the one that I learned as a kid, a, te- a college student actually when I was doing Bible memorization. And I memorized it, but I went, yeah, right, it doesn't really apply to me. And it's uh, Hebrews 4.15. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just like we are yet without sin. And I'd go, yeah, right, well, he's Jesus. And so I never bought it. I never bought into it until I began to realize that one of the reasons that we study the humanity of Jesus is to realize that he is our example for everyday living. Okay, next slide, please. So how did he become the man he was? The answer is, is that he operated in the power of the Spirit, the presence of God, and look what he became as our example. Only sober person at the party. He tapped into the grace of God in a way that we can learn from him. 
How many of you do this when it comes to the grace of God? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. How many of you, and that's true, I mean, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. But how many of you do this math? Grace equals forgiveness. And you think, okay, that's all it is. The truth is, is that the grace of God could also teach us how to say no to ungodliness and to live sober, sane, squared away lives in this present generation. And I didn't make that up. It's in the book. Now, how many of you have a picture of Jesus that allows you to see the Lord Jesus as tapping into the grace of God as a resource for him to walk successfully in life? Jesus used grace from the Father to navigate life. He learned obedience. We've already covered that. Fully acquainted with temptation, heartbreak, and grief. This is why I've been hurrying. I really want to get to this. Okay? Jesus was fully acquainted with heartbreak and temptation and with grief. In another gospel, in in Matthew's gospel, chapter 12, Matthew feels the need to also quote from Isaiah. And he quotes from Isaiah when he says, a bruised reed, he, the Messiah, a bruised reed, he will not break. In fact, that's the first servant song, sorry. A bruised reed, he will not break. And a smoldering wick, he will not put out. How many of us, me I'm talking about, you I'm talking about, how many of us are afraid to come to Jesus because in his perfection he's going to say, you loser. See, here I am, I'm bruised by life. I'm bent over by life. Life has absolutely kicked me in the side of the head and I'm just barely conscious. And I'm afraid to come to Jesus because he's perfect. The testimony is, is that he is intimately acquainted with what it means to be kicked in the side of the head. Jesus is intimately acquainted with what it means to deal with unspeakable grief or disappointment. Jesus has suffered the loss of loved ones. Jesus has suffered the um, uh, betrayal of people that were the closest to him. Jesus has suffered the misunderstanding. You see, he's the best person who ever lived, and the world ended up saying the best thing to do with this guy is get rid of him. Violently. He's, he's, he's suffered misunderstanding. He has suffered heartbreak. He has suffered grief. And so that's why of him, the scripture says, a bruised reed he won't break, or even a smoldering wick, he won't extinguish it. How many of us feel in our walk with Jesus sometimes, it's like this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine? Forget it. I mean, all that's coming out is this white wisp of smoke from me and maybe the wick has still got a little bit of heat in it. You think that's me. And Jesus isn't the guy who does this. He's the guy that reignites us. He's the guy that causes the fire to burn again. He's the one who lights the fire in us. He's fully acquainted with whatever it is that you've had to go through. Navigated life with the Holy Spirit's help. He's our example of what a human life is like lived in concert with God. Can you, can you understand that Jesus is the example of what your potential is? Jesus is the example. It doesn't matter whether you are 25 or whether you are 56. Jesus is the example of what lies ahead for you and what the possibilities are. And the upside is quite literally infinite for you. The upside is infinite. And so I tend to be a little bit, I'm on this last bullet point, 
I tend to be just a little bit philosophical. So, so here I am, city boy in the country, and somebody says, oh, let's go out and shoot some arrows, you know, archery at the range. And so they handed me the bow and they handed me the arrows. And I said, well, first of all, before I take them, I want you to know I have a philosophical problem. I think it's impossible to hit the center. I mean, conceptually, it's impossible to hit the center. So therefore, I will take the arrow, I will take the bow, and I will just shoot at random. And they say, no, you idiot. You look at the center. You focus on the center. You do your best through trial and error and experience and repetition, and you look at the center again and again and again, and if you miss, you continue to miss in the right direction. It doesn't matter if conceptually you think you can't hit the center. You keep looking at the center, and eventually you're honing in on the center. Jesus is our example of a life fully lived in concert with God. One more. Two more, actually. No three, but I'll go really fast. Okay? These are some of our favorite excuses. I'm not Jesus. Believe me, my family knows this. I have my brother-in-law here. Am I Jesus? He knows I'm not Jesus. He's seen me in my very worst. Poor guy's been my brother-in-law for 28 years. You should buy him buy him a Christmas gift just because he's put up with that. But we like to use I'm not Jesus as an excuse for saying that it's not worth it to try to align my life with his example because he's perfect and I'm not. That's an excuse that doesn't wash for serious students of Jesus. I'm only human. Guess what? So was he. He was only human, fully acquainted. All right? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Entirely true, but it's used too often as an excuse. If you say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace often enough, what does your identity become? I'm a sinner. And what do sinners do? There we go. Bing, right? And so it becomes this. All right, Savior, your job is be a Savior. My job is be a sinner. I'll do my job. You do yours. You laugh because I'm saying it out loud and it sounds funny. There was actually a guy in the 19th century who on his deathbed said, God has to forgive me. That's his job. I mean, we laugh, but when we, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Dallas Willard calls it miserable sinner theology. It's true and it puts you in a box. I will always be a sinner. That's what I do. And then, of course, I'll never be perfect. Well, conceptually, I don't care if you can hit, if you can hit the bullseye or not. I just know that by drawing down on the bullseye time and time and time again, your life begins to become more and more and more in order. Two more slides. One more. All right. How did Jesus become the man that he was? He lived in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the simple answer. The more difficult answer is that he calls us to do the very same thing. That's a challenge. But it's a hopeful challenge. It's a challenge that can fill your life with the fulfillment of calling and destiny. It's the kind of challenge that says, it doesn't matter how badly I've screwed up in the first 55 years, the next 55 can be filled with hope. Right? See, he lived his life in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. What's available to you? The same thing. The simple answer of how he became the man he was 
was he lived his life in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Last slide. This is our challenge. Is he really an example for us or is he just some pipe dream? If we have the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, view of baby Jesus and then 12-year-old Jesus and then grown-up Jesus, then he's just some faraway dude who said a lot of impossible things. Here's the most telling experience I ever had. Uh, There was a time when I was teaching a class on the um, Sermon on the Mount. You know the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so after we had read it three, four, five times, I asked a student, I said, do you think you can live up to that? And she said, absolutely not. And I said, well, I thought Jesus is like the greatest teacher ever. She goes, he certainly is. And I said, so you're telling me the greatest teacher who ever lived has now given you the greatest sermon ever preached and you can't possibly live up to it. Do you see any disconnect between those three? And she thought about it for a minute and she said, no, I don't. She said, I think he taught the Sermon on the Mount to prove to me that I'm a sinner and I need his grace. Now, if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, that's not in there. And so I I just looked at her and I probably regret the, the degree or the force with which I did it. And I said, so Jesus preached the greatest sermon ever preached just to be able to tell you what a loser you are because it's no help in life at all. And she ran crying from the room and I said, okay, class dismissed you. That last, I made up that last part. But I really did say that to her, and she was not happy. Okay? All right. So Christmas season, don't forget Thanksgiving, please, and send me your leftovers. Christmas season, the challenge would be to say, what is the incarnation all about? The enfleshment of God becoming a human being. And the answer is, is that God did not rig the deck. God did not play unfair. God lived life one day at a time, just like you and I live life one day at a time. And the beauty of it is, is that here in middle of November, you can take the next six weeks to begin to unpack that time and time and time again. That to embrace the humanity of Jesus is to find hope for your own life. To embrace the humanity of Jesus actually opens up the possibilities of what my life can look like lived in concert with Jesus. Would, this is the way we do it at the vineyard. Would you stand with me? If there are ministry team folk, you guys can come rushing up. And in my view, there's only two possibilities with respect to, um, to responding to this word. The two possibilities are to say amen or oh me. I'm sure this is rooted in the scriptural testimony. Jesus is our example of what it means to live life. So we can either say amen or we can say, oh me, I've put him in a category that's made him inaccessible to me. And these guys, these guys are here to pray with you about that or pray about any other need that you have. The presence and the power of the Holy Spirit by the sweet and undeniable promise of the Father is here for us right now. Whatever need you have, whether it's regret over lost opportunities or whether it's over bursitis that just won't leave you alone, whatever need you have, like Christmas is coming and I'm not even going to be able to buy the turkey for the meal, much less the gifts. Whatever need you have, I feel alienated 
from the ones I love the most because they've rejected me. Whatever need you have, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit is the starting point, and that's what these guys are happy to pray with you about. Isn't that right? Okay. So, would you pray with me? And then we'll be dismissed. Jesus, I ask that you'd confirm your word, not just to our minds, but to our heart. Would you open up the amazing horizon that you really are our older brother and that you are the source of hope and life? Would you protect and watch over your word in our lives? In your name we pray. Amen. Give somebody a high five or a hug. See you.